What did God tell Ezekiel when he commissioned him to be a prophet? What does it mean when someone says they are deconstructing their faith? And what did Ezekiel's nation have in common with America today? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. Once as a youth pastor, I was having a conversation with an older man who had been a missionary for most of his life. And we were basically talking about the differences in reaching teenagers in modern times as opposed to how it was 20 or 30 years ago. And I was talking to him about my experience of of being a youth pastor in this modern American culture and how I felt oftentimes like a missionary. Now, I've never been a real missionary, and I don't claim to be a missionary. And I hold missionaries in a much higher regard than I do myself. My personal comparison to my role to a missionary was in regard to the culture that I'm trying to reach. You know, a missionary goes into a foreign culture that knows nothing about the Bible or God and teaches them the gospel basically from scratch. They really have no frame of reference for Christianity until a missionary shows up in their town and starts telling them. And that idea of going into a foreign culture and teaching people about God and the Bible from the ground up, it's oftentimes how I've felt as a modern youth pastor. You see, historically in America, people could walk into your church and they would know the bare bones basics about God and Jesus and dying for our sins in heaven and hell. Even if they didn't always believe those things, they at least knew the basic beliefs that Christians hold to. But nowadays, the youngest generations oftentimes aren't even familiar with the basics. Reaching them is kind of like venturing into a foreign country that has zero knowledge of God or scripture. America is frequently said to be a Christian nation. So why is the knowledge of God so foreign to our youngest generations? Well, the reason for that is that we're becoming, and in some ways already are, a post-Christian society. What does post-Christian mean? Well, let's explain it from the point of view of a missionary. We typically send missionaries to pre-Christian societies. Pre-Christian is the optimistic view that when a missionary goes to a foreign land, that the people will be converted and that the culture of that region will literally change and become a God-fearing, righteous society that conducts itself by the principles of God's word. So a land that's not yet following God could be called optimistically pre-Christian. Now, if a society is already Christian, (laughs) we generally don't feel a need to send missionaries there. And by the way, I recognize that there can still be pockets within a Christian nation that still benefit from missionary influence, like a college campus or parachurch ministries. I'm not trying to exclude them. I'm just saying that when a society is already Christian and there's a church on every street in town, we aren't prioritizing those areas for our missionary support. And then there's the post-Christian society. And this is what you call it when a nation or a land was at one time Christian but has faded from its former glory and now doesn't care about following biblical standards any longer. You could say this about 
many European nations, and every day it becomes more true for America as well. And I think it is what you could also say about Israel at the time of Ezekiel's prophetic ministry. Now, perhaps post-Christian is not the best word, as they wouldn't have used the word Christian to describe themselves back before Christ had even come to this world. But when it came to being a believer, someone who followed the Bible and the God of the Bible, Israel had its ups and downs all through its history. It had its spiritual highs and its spiritual slumps. And at the time of Ezekiel, Israel was perhaps in its deepest spiritual slump ever. So deep that God had evicted them from their land. At this moment that Ezekiel is being called as a prophet, which we'll be reading today, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar is chipping away at them one chunk at a time. And in just a few years from now, Israel will be so decimated that it won't even be considered a sovereign nation anymore, a status they will not get back until May of 1948. And so God sends Ezekiel to be Israel's wake-up call, a wake-up call to a post-Christian or post-biblical society to startle the people into dedicating themselves to God once again. It's frustrating because Israel has the entire religious infrastructure already in place. And there's a distant awareness in the minds of the people that back when Israel most thrived, it was when they relied on God to guide them. And yet, now they think they're smart enough to get by without God. And when things haven't fallen into place the way they expected and they start to suffer defeats from their enemies, they don't quite put two and two together and recognize that perhaps they should return to God if they want his blessings back. Ezekiel gave people the wake-up call they sorely needed. And it may be the wake-up call that America needs as well, lest we suffer a similar fate. I can see a whole lot of parallels in the Israel of Ezekiel's day and the America of today. So, Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3 continue the commissioning of Ezekiel. I'm breaking these two chapters into three parts, and the first part is what we'll talk about today, found in the first seven verses of Ezekiel 2. We're not covering a whole lot of verses today, so let's start with verses 1 and 2. This is continuing Ezekiel's commissioning, which means God is personally ordaining Ezekiel for ministry and giving him a specific mission. Starting at verse 1 of Ezekiel 2, And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Now, I'm only wanting to read six verses today, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I just want to point something out here that's probably my favorite aspect of today's lesson. Notice that as chapter 2 begins, Ezekiel has collapsed before God. We talked in the previous lesson about Ezekiel that when Ezekiel saw God with his own eyes, he just totally collapsed. It then says in chapter 2, verse 2, that Ezekiel climbed to his feet because the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, entered into him and set him back on his feet. Why? Well, back in verse 1, God tells Ezekiel, stand up on your feet. So notice the sequence of events. God commands Ezekiel to do something, and then the Holy Spirit empowers Ezekiel to do it. That, in the first two verses of this chapter, is a microcosm of how Ezekiel will operate throughout his entire ministry. 
God commands something, and then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel is able to do it. If not for the power of the Holy Spirit, (laughs) I don't believe Ezekiel even could. But God empowers Ezekiel to do exactly what God told Ezekiel to do. Do you know who else that is true for? You and I. God tells us what to do, and then he empowers us to do it. When what God is asking for sounds impossible, it's not. Because the Holy Spirit is not going to hang us out to dry. God will empower us to accomplish whatever he has told us to do. So I encourage you today to rely on God's power. Don't think you have to do everything in your own strength. In fact, don't even try. Um, When I first entered preaching ministry in, in 2012 or 13 as a volunteer youth pastor, I was so terrified to get up and speak in front of the teenagers. Um, it was just a handful of teens, but <laughs> I was I was begging and pleading with God to help me because I knew there was nothing, not a single thing that I could say that would help anyone if it wasn't the Holy Spirit enabling me. I was such a terrible, inexperienced, nervous public speaker. When I tried to speak in front of groups before, gibberish came out of my mouth. I knew, and I still know today, that the only way something even halfway articulate would come out of my mouth was with God's help. And now today, nearly a decade later, am I confident enough in my abilities to get up and speak that I don't really think I need God's help anymore? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm not as nervous as I used to be, but I never want to be in a place where I think I could get up and preach a message or teach a class without washing that message in prayer before delivering it. To think I could even speak one sentence in my own ability without the Spirit's help would be nothing but pride. To ever prepare to speak from the pulpit without remembering to pray for God's help first would be nothing but pride. You know, it would have been impossible for me to forget to pray over a message that first few years that I was in ministry because I was so nervous every time I got up to speak. I was constantly asking God again and again to help me get through it. But you know, as I've gotten more comfortable... It would be easy to forget to ask for God's help and just to relax in my own experience and forget to ask God to empower me. May that never be so in my life. That would be nothing but pride to think I could speak two coherent sentences without his Holy Spirit. Do you know what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do? Everything, every task, no matter how small, no matter how ordinary, no matter how many times I've done it before, will be more successful with the Holy Spirit. I can demonstrate that right here from just these two verses. The Holy Spirit entered Ezekiel to help him stand up. The people ask me if you need the Holy Spirit to be Pentecostal. I tell them, I need the Holy Spirit just to get out of bed in the morning. If Ezekiel needed God's power just to stand up, why do we think we're able to witness or counsel others or understand our Bible when we read it? or teach a Sunday school class, or a Bible study podcast, or get out of bed in the morning without seeking God's power and spirit first. Everything Ezekiel says and does for God in this book will be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Ezekiel is especially going to need God's help because the people he's being sent to speak to are as rebellious as you can imagine. We're going to read some more verses from today's section now, and I just want you to notice how many times it uses the word rebel or rebellious. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, 
to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. I think I found the word rebel or rebellious seven times in this chapter. This is the main word God is using to describe the Israelites that Ezekiel is being sent to reach. And why is that the the word of the day in this chapter? Well, let's talk about what rebel means. We don't always have to be so technical, but we're only looking at seven verses today. Rebel means to revolt against some kind of authority. Uh, When you watch a Star Wars movie, the good guys are called the rebels. (laughs) This can be a little confusing because rebelling is typically a bad thing. It really comes down, though, to what you're rebelling against. Now, in Star Wars, the rebels are rebelling against the Galactic Empire. And the Empire is clearly the bad guys because they blow up planets and shoot lightning out of their fingers and wear masks all the time and try to raise taxes. Clearly, rebelling against them was the right thing to do, even though they shot Ewoks. However, in biblical terms, rebelling against authority is a sign of a wicked culture. And oftentimes, people who are rebellious to authority are also rebellious to the Bible. They're rebellious to biblical authority, the claim that God has on each one of our lives to tell us what to do. We all recognize that nobody is perfect, that we all commit sins, sometimes even after being saved. But I'm speaking more about a general attitude to the idea that God tells us what to do. You either love being under God's authority or you hate it. If you hate the idea of living your life under the Bible, that's a pretty good sign that you aren't saved. A saved person takes this kind of attitude to God's word. This is from Psalm 119. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Or I like the exchange at the end of John 6. Jesus has just gotten done with a very difficult teaching. It said that, Many of the people who followed him didn't like it. It made them very uncomfortable. It changed the idea of truth that they had in their heads. And they abandoned Jesus. And then it says in John 6, So Jesus said to the twelve, you know, meaning right here, the twelve disciples, the ones who remained. He said, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. People who are saved will follow God even when it's not comfortable for them. Why? Well, because they know, like what Peter said here, that God has the words of eternal life. And they will follow him even when it gets hard. And that shows a big distinction right there between the people who call themselves Christians because they're sold out to Jesus and those who call themselves Christians because It's kind of the cultural thing to do, or it's family tradition. A big difference comes down to how do you treat the Bible or God's authority in your life? Are you delighted by God's commands, even when it means you have to change your behavior? You know, delighted means that you're literally thankful for God's rules, because you know that those boundaries are going to enhance your life if you can stay between them. And if that idea of being thankful for rules from God is, is foreign to you, then what is your attitude about God's word? <laughs> Do you see it as some sort of 
legal document that you try to find loopholes in. Um, I, I was talking to a young person earlier this year who had attended our church, but I didn't believe he had really committed himself to Christ. So um, we were talking and he asked me a question about um, the, the sexual ethics of the Bible, basically. And I was informing him about some of the sexual rules that the Bible imposes, like not having sex until you're, until you're married. And I explained the whole plan of God for the proper use of sex, that it was created for a husband and wife. And that sexual activity outside of marriage was going against God's good plan for human sexuality. He was silent for a few moments after I explained all this. And then he he told me, I I understand what you said. I'm just trying to figure out where the loopholes are. And I I laughed at his transparency on that because uh, he, he outright said the thing that so many people internalize. And it really speaks to this issue of, whether you confess Jesus as not just Savior, but Lord. Do you have an attitude toward the Bible as this legal framework where you try to find all the loopholes? Is your attitude towards sin in a place where you try to get as close to the line as you can without crossing it? Are you focused on the letter of the law or the spirit of the law? Because all that reveals where your heart is at in regards to spiritual authority. And this is why Israel is called rebellious so many times in these verses, as God is setting up Ezekiel for his mission that will last the rest of his life. Ezekiel is going to die in this captivity setting in Babylon among a people who had rebelled against God. He's going to spend the rest of his life there, trying to get Israel back on track to following God so that they can be forgiven and restored. But for right now, Israel is in a state of rebellion against God's authority. And I think that the things... Ezekiel says to Israel are going to be the same types of things that Ezekiel would say to America if he were here today. Because like Israel, America was known at one time as a nation that followed God, that had a biblical, moral, and even legal framework. But America is becoming a post-Christian nation. And one of the hallmarks of a post-Christian nation is rebellion. America rebels against God. We've rewritten our marriage laws. We kill hundreds of thousands of babies each year through abortion, sometimes more than a million a year. And even churches are embracing the sexual ethics of California instead of the sexual ethics of the Bible. And I don't say that to pick on California, but those are two very different things. And I also say that to pick on California. America is rebelling against authority in general. We are rebelling against our own constitution, It's now commonplace for a president to try to rule by executive order now instead of the constitutional practice of passing laws through Congress. It's now commonplace for a president to sign one of these into law and even openly admit that it's probably not legal, that the courts will strike it down. But he'll do it anyway because that's what his base wants. It's rebellion against authority, even by those in authority. And it's often cheered on. America is rebelling against biology. This transgender ideology that's permeated society right now is anti-science. Male and female are separate categories. And everything's gender was determined at the moment of their conception. It's not based on feelings or choice. There's no such thing as non-binary genders. Gender is binary by nature and by design. But America is rebelling against biological reality. America has basically said, oh yes, we know that God established marriage in Genesis 2, but 
we have our own understanding of marriage now. America has said, well, yes, we know that God made them male and female in Genesis 1, but we have our own understanding of gender now. America is in rebellion to God, to authority, and to basic reality. Now, you might say I'm getting political, but I'm really talking about the culture. I don't really care what some crackpot in D.C. thinks as much as I care about what my neighbor across the street thinks or what you think. And I want to ask you a question. If God puts a fence down and says, this is a boundary, I don't want you to cross it. I don't want you to move it. I I want you to live by it. Do you delight in that? Or do you roll your eyes and say, well, I don't want to be one of those strict Christians. Because one of those responses is rebellious against God's word. And I'm not talking today about being rebellious to church traditions. You know, like a pastor preaching without wearing a suit and tie. Like a woman wanting to wear jeans to church instead of a dress. You know, that's fine. That's not a moral issue. It's not even really a modesty issue. And sometimes people, especially the younger half of the population, they'll reject church traditions that don't really mean anything to them. And that's not always a bad thing. You know, some people want to stand during praise and worship music. Others want to sit. Some only want the hymns in the songbook. Others want a larger variety. You know, those things, that's not rebelling against God. Those are just issues of tradition that we all have to work out for ourselves. So when I talk about rebellion, and as I talk about how societies change over time, I'm talking about rebellion as God is using it in these verses in Ezekiel. I'm talking about rebelling against God and his authority in our lives. And one area where I've seen a lot of rebellion over the past few years is in the area of deconstruction. Have you heard this word deconstruction lately? You know, we used to say that a Christian who walked away from his faith was deconverting. Well, deconstruction is being used a little bit differently than that. Those two things are not exact synonyms. Christians who deconstruct their faith often still call themselves Christians afterwards, but they usually adopt a progressive false version of Christianity that conflicts with the Bible in a lot of areas. Here's how deconstruction works. Um, Have you ever had a little kid who learns the dreaded three-letter question and sentence, why? They'll ask you a question about something, you know, anything, and you give them an answer, and they say, why? And then you give them that answer, and they say, why? (laughs) We've all had a little sibling or, or a child who got who got on the Y kick, and you can follow that rabbit hole as deep as you want to before you finally say, okay, that's it, I've had enough. Because no matter what answer you give, you can always follow it up with a why. Well, that's basic deconstruction, and and you can do that with anything. You can take any idea or practice and try to analyze the foundational ideas behind it. And from there, you can decide whether to retain that idea or do away with it. That's basically what deconstruction is. One of the most popular deconstructionist movements right now, um, just to give an example here that you'll recognize, it's called critical race theory. Critical race theory takes an idea, any idea, and starts to deconstruct it, you know, finding out why we do this or that, but viewing it through a racial filter. It assumes that, that basically the foundational idea behind every practice is race-related. And critical race theory is not, I'm not even going to say it's 100% bad. It's very good at identifying things that do have racist roots. But the problem with critical race theory is that it thinks everything has racist roots. 
Um, I'm probably going to do an episode in the first part of next year analyzing critical race theory from a biblical perspective. Critical race theory always ascribes a racial motive to to every subject you can imagine. That's why we see headlines nowadays that, that say things like zookeeping is racist, which talked about how there's not enough black zookeepers. It, it, you know, it takes an idea like zookeeping. It analyzes why people choose to become zookeepers. And if there's not enough members of a particular race represented in that group, it assumes a racist motivation behind that. So deconstruction, it sounds very analytical and objective, but there's actually a lot of ways that deconstruction can zig when it should zag and come to the wrong conclusion about things. It's okay to ask why, why, why we do certain things, but you have to make sure you're locating the correct answers to those why questions. So there's another deconstructionist movement going on, a Christian deconstructionist movement. And that's when a Christian or just someone who grew up in church accepting a lot of traditions or biblical morality, they start taking various ideas and traditions they've grown up with and start analyzing them from a new point of view. You know, they start asking why we do this or that in churches, why we believe this or that. And that's not inherently bad. I do that myself all the time. You know, like I said, you can you can de- deconstruct anything if you take any idea and just keep asking why about it long enough. The deconstructionist movement going on among Christians right now, however, wants to assign some kind of sinister motivation for just about any traditional Christian practice. And then it uses that as an excuse to throw out as much of Christianity as possible. Here's an example that I've seen myself lately. Purity culture. In the 90s and 2000s, there was a movement in many churches in America, especially youth groups, of embracing sexual purity, making vows to remain abstinent until marriage, wearing promise rings, emphasizing dressing modestly, you know, so on. Uh, Popular books from that time, there were things like Every Man's Battle, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. We call that era purity culture. And so, uh, you know, lately, a lot of people who grew up in that time period— a lot of people who are my age now, they're deconstructing purity culture. They're, they're asking some good questions about it, but I also see them making a lot of unfounded critiques of purity culture. So just to go a little bit deeper on this for a moment, um, when people criticize purity culture, th- they often say that it was only taught to girls that, that boys weren't given instruction on how to properly treat girls. Now, as someone who lived through that time period, I can definitely tell you that boys were absolutely given instruction on how to treat the opposite sex. But would it be true to say that uh, perhaps too much emphasis was placed on the girls and made a lot of responsibility for purity put on the girls' shoulders? You know, I think that could be fair to say. That would, that would be a fair critique. Um, purity culture was not as gender balanced as it could have been. And I'd say that When it came to dressing modestly, for example, there was a greater emphasis placed on female clothing than on male. Uh, Let's look at this from another angle, though. Another question I've seen asked is, where does this foundational understanding of sexual purity even come from? Well, it comes from the Bible's own teaching that sex is meant for husbands and wives. People who are not married to each other are not not supposed to have sex. You know, kind of like I was telling the boy in the story from earlier. So... Purity culture does have some biblical roots, even if it did manifest in some ways that were not always fair to both genders. 
okay? So what did we just do? Well, we just lightly deconstructed purity culture. Uh, you know, I was trying to be brief right there, so I kind of shot straight to the point to where it originates in the Bible. Um, so here's what I see from modern Christian deconstructionists and where they go wrong. They decide that purity culture as a whole needs to go. Even if it has a biblical foundation, they just say, well, that, that part of the Bible has to go as well. They'll say it's because it, it's based in patriarchy or that it oppresses women. And so what started as a rejection of purity culture leads to rejecting the Bible's entire teaching on sexual morality as a whole. And that's why you have a lot of modern people who may actually still call themselves Christians, but they'll say things like that the Bible has mistakes, that the Bible's ethics need updated for modern times. Well, when you do that, you've stripped the Bible of any authority it once had. And from there, it's easy to reject anything the Bible says. The, the modern Christian deconstructionist movement almost always leads people to embrace a progressive theology, or perhaps no theology at all. But regardless, it always, well, almost always, ends in progressivism. Um, and I'll probably be doing a podcast on progressive Christianity before long as well. But um, listen, I just want to say, I know I'm being a little bit neutral on the phrase deconstruction today. Um, that's because there's nothing sinister about deconstructing any idea. You know, by definition, deconstruction is a neutral term. But I will say, 90% of the time when people say they're deconstructing their faith, you know, these days, they almost always say that they're becoming more progressive or woke or walking away from traditional Christianity entirely. And that's what I mean when I say the deconstruction movement. It's these people who analyze their Christian faith, they find one aspect of it that they don't like, and they throw out as much of it as they can that's connected to that one thing. As we used to say, they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I don't know if people say that anymore, but we used to say that when I was a kid. Progressive theology, the deconstructionist movement, all of these things are a part of the modern rebellion against God's authority that we're seeing going on in our culture, just like Ezekiel had witnessed going on in Israel. Remember, Ezekiel is 30 here. That's not far from my own age. And societal shifts, such as the shift from a Christian to a post-Christian society, they take place over long periods of time. It's not my generation that started the decline away from God, just like it wasn't Ezekiel's generation that started that. It was the period of time that Ezekiel was born into. But God raised Ezekiel up for his time, and God has raised you and I up for our time. The reason God has you in this world right now, as opposed to having you born 100 years ago or in some other country far away, it's because he needed you on the front lines right here, right now. So if you're against the deconstructionist movement, and if you're against the progressive theology that's taking over the American church one denomination at a time, you're going to catch some flack because you're swimming against the current of culture. You're going to be told that you're out of touch, that you're on the wrong side of history. Well, this is what God would say to you. And it's the same thing he said to Ezekiel, starting at verse 6. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, 
for they are a rebellious house. Out of all the prophets that God called when he commissioned them, Ezekiel is the only one that God told not to be afraid. And you know, a lot of prophets had scary or intimidating jobs. A lot of them were killed. Ezekiel is the only one told, though, not to be afraid. He's told not to be afraid despite the briars and thorns and scorpions. And it's somewhat vague precisely whether the thorns and scorpions are good or bad for Ezekiel. You know, it sounds bad. Some commentators think that God means that the threat of the thorns is pointed away from Ezekiel and toward those who would oppose him. You know, I'm not sure if that's right, but um, regardless, the clear implication here is God is saying not to worry about resistance from other people. When you're commissioned from God to give a certain message, it doesn't really matter what other people think. You know, they, they tell me as a pastor, you preach for an audience of one. And the one is God. You aren't, you aren't preaching to please people. If I was preaching to please people, I wouldn't have said a lot of things that I already said today. When you serve God, when you speak truth, you're doing it for an audience of one. So you should never let the fear of what others think prevent you from serving God. And Jesus himself promised repeatedly that we would face resistance when we take a stand for God. What kind of resistance would Ezekiel deal with? Well, it mentions a couple things. Their words and their looks. What kind of words will people use? Well, I imagine the kind of words that Ezekiel would deal with are the same kind of words that we hear about Christians today. You know, name-calling, labeling. Um, Christians today are constantly labeled as hateful, intolerant, bigoted, having some kind of phobia or ism. And people seem to believe that if they can just slap a mean-sounding label on you, that they've won the argument. Well, don't let their words bother you. You aren't speaking for them. You're speaking for God. You're speaking on God's behalf. Like Jesus said, if they hate you, know that they hated me first. He said that in John 15, 18. They aren't rejecting you. They're rejecting God. So, you know, if they want to call God a bigot or say he has some kind of phobia, well, that's between them and God. Your job is just to tell them the truth and let them do what they want with it. Uh, let me go back to verse 5. I'm just going to read verse 5 again. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. You know that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? <laughs> well, you can lead a rebellious unbeliever to truth, but you can't make him think. However, when the day of judgment comes for that person, they will at least have had an opportunity to hear the truth. Now, when we get into Ezekiel chapter 3, we're going to get back to this idea about putting the responsibility for salvation in others' hands. We cannot force someone to get saved. That is their choice. However, as Christians, it's our responsibility to put the opportunity to get saved in front of them. No one's going to get to heaven if we don't do our part of going and telling. And this audience is rebellious, just like our society is rebellious. If you're an American citizen like me, and you're listening to this right now, and you're a Christian, then you can look around and you can see that this society is rebellious to the things of God. But what Ezekiel chapter 2 shows me is that God doesn't give up on you just because you've rebelled. He still sends preachers and prophets out to turn the people back to him. 
God clearly hasn't given up on the people of Israel if he's going to all this trouble to send Ezekiel out to them to speak for 48 whole chapters. It's never too late for someone to be saved, not until the moment they die. So don't give up on people. Don't conclude that so-and-so is just never going to get it, that it's too late for them to ever come to Christ. If they're still breathing, then that means God hasn't given up on them, so you shouldn't either. We'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. First, let me just ask, do you like fake news? Well, if not, then you definitely do not want to check out my other podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we look at the past week of news stories through a meta-narrative of how the media covered those stories. It's a lot of fun. It's more focused on current events. So if you don't like fake news, you definitely don't want to come listen to it. But if you like laughing at fake news, come join the fun with new episodes of that one each Friday. And if you have a question on this chapter, leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcasts at gmail.com. I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. So let me tell you what I'm thinking for my next couple episodes. (laughs) I've got a busy, busy week ahead of me. So busy, I do not expect to have a new episode ready by Monday a week from now. Because this coming weekend is the Christmas program at our church. We're holding our Christmas program on December 19th this year. So the kids are doing a play, and then I'll deliver a short sermon, and everyone gets out of church early. It's a fantastic day, (laughs) but it's actually going to take some extra prep work on my part this week. So therefore, my next Cross References podcast will probably be a bit delayed. I'm going to try really hard to have one out before Christmas, um, perhaps on the Wednesday or Thursday before Christmas. So, So stay tuned, but I expect the next episode will be just a little bit later than usual. Um, This is such a fun time of year, but it's busy though, especially for churches. So I appreciate your patience. Let's recap today because we went to a lot of places today and I just want to kind of tie it all together for you right here before we go. We discussed the difference in a pre-Christian and a post-Christian society. A pre-Christian society is not familiar with the God of the Bible in general, but it does have potential to grow. So we send missionaries there in hope of converting the people and the culture. A post-Christian society is one that has a history of biblical morals and governance, but has declined in its spirituality. And that is how I would describe America right now. And it's also how I describe Israel in Ezekiel's day. Now, of course, the people of Ezekiel's time wouldn't have used the word Christian because Christ hadn't come yet. I'm using that term as an analogy. They were a post-biblical or a post-believer society, a post-follower-of-God society, but all those things basically mean the same as our modern term, post-Christian. So Ezekiel was sent into this post-biblical society to call the people back to God, back to the Bible. And so we read about Ezekiel's commissioning in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. And the first thing we notice in these verses, probably my favorite thing today, is that God told Ezekiel to stand up, and immediately in the next verse, the Holy Spirit entered Ezekiel to help him stand up. The principle here is that the Holy Spirit will enable us to do what God calls us to do. What God calls you to do might be beyond your natural ability, but with God's help, 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, it will be possible. And then the next section of verses we looked at were about how God was calling Ezekiel to speak to a rebellious people. He uses the word rebellious at least seven times in this chapter. And this is a word that characterizes a a post-Christian or post-biblical nation. You can't be rebellious if you never knew God in the first place. Israel knew God and was turning their back to him, so therefore they were rebelling against him. And I relate Israel's rebellious status to America in its present state. America is turning its back on God more and more with every day that goes by. It's not just rebelling against God, it's rebelling against authority in general, even the authority of biological science. (laughs) Many anti-God progressives will tout their pro-science credentials, saying that they are the party of science, that they believe science is real. And yet, as soon as a biological male declares himself a woman, they'll be first in line to buy him a purse. America is rebelling against fact because God is truth. And so to rebel against God is to rebel against the truth. I spoke here also about the deconstructionist movement that's presently going through Christianity. And again, deconstruction is simply a practice of breaking a concept down to its building blocks and then determining which aspects of it are good and which are bad. It sounds kind of analytical and objective, but there's a lot of ways that deconstruction can go wrong. In 90% of the time, when modern people deconstruct their faith, They end up embracing ideas that go totally against the Bible. You know, sometimes they still continue to call themselves Christian, and sometimes not. But, but, you know, either way, about 90% of the time, they end up rejecting biblical authority. So what are we to do in the face of this atmosphere of rebellion against God? Well, exactly what God told Israel. Be not afraid. Don't worry about what they say about you. Don't worry about how they look at you. You have to be thick-skinned enough to handle criticism and losing friends if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. You have to love Jesus enough to lose any standing or status with the rest of the world. Because if you're following God faithfully, you are going to lose standing with most of society. H.A. Ironside, in his commentary on this part of Ezekiel, he said this, It is not necessary that one should be what the world calls successful. It is all important that one should be faithful to the trust committed to him. Thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that shooting Ewoks is actually a bad thing.